Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 119 on Octavia E. Butler's Fledgling. With me today is that 500-year-old snooty vampire who lives just just outside of Chicago, Hoy. Hello, Jeff Simhoy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, actually, no, that snooty vampire lives outside of L.A. I'm getting everything mixed up, but whatever. <laughs> we still got this snooty vampire with us. Um, also with us, speaking of vampires, is the game designer behind Thousand-Year-Old Vampire, Our Vacation and a Crow's Funeral. We have Tim Hutchings with us. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Hello, Tim. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you. And I've got a copy of Thousand-Year-Old Vampire, and I just got to say, it is such an incredibly gorgeous book. It's one of it's one of my one of my favorite RPG books just to pick up in a hole. Like it's just such a stunner. Thank you so much. Uh, the next book's going to be prettier, I promise. <gasps> yeah that that that's quite a that's quite a promise you're making. I I make outrageous promises because they mean nothing. <laughs> and it's you're easy. going into your fourth printing right now, right? Is that correct? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You keep track. Yeah. Um, I barely keep track. So <laughs> yeah, Hoy's kind of obsessed with you. I was like, Hoy, you need to stop following this man around. Like we've got him on the podcast. It's okay. It's it's, it's the smell. It's the aura. Even across <laughs> the, even across the internet. <laughs> I feel bad then for actually meeting because I don't measure. I don't measure up to anything that I look like on the internet. I mean, geez, I should turn off the video feed. <laughs> so, uh, Tim, tell us a little bit about how you got into gaming, how you got into fantasy and science fiction and horror literature. How did this stuff change your life? I don't know. Tell me something about this stuff. Okay, I think my story is absolutely the same uh, as any other. Uh, a white guy, tubby white guy from the middle class story. I was playing games and reading books from the time I was like seven. I was playing, I had, I remember getting Dungeons and Dragons, one of the box sets in an Easter basket for my parents, probably when I was eight or nine. Uh, it was just, just forever. Aww. And then I, I went and I to college and I stopped. So I did the reverse of what most people do. Most people pick it up in college. I went to college. I stopped gaming. I focused in on my work, worked, 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 went to New York, Worked there, made art, did all this stuff. And then I very slowly slid back into gaming. And then I had my mind blown by uh, Nerd NYC, which was this incredible uh, game collective where people would come together, play games. There was a forum board back when forums were a thing. Uh, and people that just amazing people were there. John Stavropoulos was there, all these folks. Um, and I played all these wild games. And at the time I was working, I was making art and putting it in galleries. And I started to realize, and this was terrible, that I could do things with games better than I could do them with art. And uh, that's how I got to where I am now. Today, I just deinstalled what I think is my last art show ever. I just just took all the work down. Oh, yeah! Wow, it had a, it had a slap of Another finality. Big statement. Yeah, I dare some rich person with a gallery to prove me wrong. <laughs> have yeah. you heard it any, here, folks? Have yeah. you found any overlap between your two uh, your two audiences? Um, believe it or not, there is. There's a whole bunch of artists 
who are making artwork. Okay, there's a whole bunch of artists who make artwork that deal with role-playing games, and you can very easily stretch them into two different groups. There's a whole bunch of artists who are bad guys, who want to flip over a rock and say, hey, look at these nerds doing this weird thing. I'm going to put that in my gallery so we can look at them. Uh, and they're cultural appropriators doing weird shit, making fun of folks. And I would meet them in New York, and it was terrible. But then um, there's all these – I'm really bad with names – all these other artists who are making artwork like serious, like high art that comes out of their love of, um, of uh, games and fantasy worlds. There's a fellow named Brian Browning. Uh, I have one of his paintings. It's one of my favorite things. And he makes these beautiful paintings of blobs and things and drifting shapes. And he says, Hey, if I, w- if I was a magic user in D and D and I could do magic stuff, what would I make? And he's like, so he's painting the things he would make. And it's so good. And I'm like, this is good art and it's good gaming and it's beautiful. Oh. Amazing. And how do you have like a, a historic love of literature that's also woven into this? Wow, that's tough because my love of literature is terrible. I just like trashy, bad things. I grew up like I remember reading all the Gord the Rogue books. Right? <laughs> uh, things that don't even hold up in terms of nostalgia. Uh, and I, <laughs> hey, Appendix N stuff, I was an idiot. And I had that right in front of me since the time I was like eight or nine. But I didn't read the Appendix N, which is just full of amazing stuff, right? Uh, I didn't start coming to that until my 20s and 30s. And uh, yeah. like now I have an unstoppable love of Jack Vance. I just, mm. I will die with Jack Vance on my brains. Do you have a favorite Jack Vance? There's so many favorite Jack Vances, and I f- get all fluttery at the idea of just picking one. But the, uh, the, uh, the, sh- I don't even know how to say it. T S C H A I books, the, the Shy, Shy, the yeah. Planet, Planet Adventure. Adventure books. Yeah, yeah. Oh, those are so good. Oh, those are great. Uh, those might be my favorites. Uh, I'll tell you one thing, though, with Jack Vance. I like the Jack Vance books so much. And I looked and I said, well, Jack Vance is dead. Um, I'm not going to read them all. And I would say, and I saved some books. I set them aside. And I said, at some point in my life, I'll need to read a book. And it will be this one. I'll set aside the, uh, 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 Ar- I want to say Arduin. But that's not Arduin. Armadist, Armanta. Oh, my God. I, I've never said these words out loud. Armenta Station. Armenta Station. Armenta Station. I'll set yeah. that aside. I'll set aside yeah. the uh, showboats. I'll set these books aside. And slowly come to them in times of need. There you go. Love it. Love it. Ugh. That's like a prepper. You got your can of beans and you've got your Jack Vance. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, cannibal. Don't eat me yet. I have three more pages. And this sounds like a good segue into what would you recommend our listeners read for gaming inspiration? The thing I would want people to read that they might not. I mean, aside from Jack Vance. And aside from Matthew Hughes and all these je- these people who write homages to Jack Vance, right? There's all that stuff. Set that aside. Would maybe be the Charles Strauss uh, Laundry Files. Are we familiar? You're familiar with those? Mm, yes, definitely. Yep, I just cool. finished uh, Escape from Yokai Land today. Okay, I um, it's just the way he deals with like here. It's like the players are encountering the dungeon master's setting in the most efficient meta way possible right i'm going to write a script for my iphone that casts spells uh that's that's just amazing and it's such a fun way to think and it 
felt feels like it should be a game the way it's operating with that weird versus balance efficiency thing. Does that make sense? The characters solve problems the way I think players often solve problems when they when we have to solve mm-hmm. problems in games. Now, I don't know if you know this. Charles Strauss was a nerd and as a teenager, I mean, he was definitely, you can tell yeah. from his writing, but as a teenager, he created some monsters that showed up in White Dwarf and later in the Fiend Folio, including so the Gith Yankee, the Gith yes. Yankee and the Slod. So that's him. Yeah, I, yeah. that's just, that's just ridiculous. Um, that, that early, the openness of the early TSR world was just incredible. Like, you know, some guy gets hired and he's 19, you know. Um, we've made a book. We all need to make the drawings for it. You know, it's just wonderful. Yeah. Ah. So now we can go ahead and start chatting a little bit about Octavia E. Butler's Fledgling. But first, let's take a look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Hoy, do we have a word to showcase today? Oh, right. I think we have the only possible choice for today. Symbiont. Yes. An organism living in symbiosis with another. Um, <laughs> a, it was the logical word. And frankly, Octavia Butler's prose is so uh, clean and unadorned. That was the only word that really stood out. So Yeah. The word is from 1877. It has French origins. And it's, it's such a weird word, right? Yeah. I don't, I, I'm excited about talking about that word, but I don't want to talk too much. <laughs> so I'm going to sit here really quiet and let you talk. I, I mean, if you have if you have something you really want to share about the word, we can. We can we can, we can take some time for that. Well, the, why is the word there? I mean, I want to know because we have j- vampires who live for like seven hundred or a thousand years or whatever, right? And I and I forgot. I, I apologize. I can't remember the exact numbers. And they've been around. They have a twenty thousand year written history. I think something like that. It's a ten thousand year written history, and they live to about five hundred. Okay, so that's twenty generations, yeah. right? At least five hundred. Yeah. And yeah. what? Uh, so, what word were they using a thousand years ago for the people? Exactly. That, that's what I want to know. Um, yeah. Right. And I, and it's like, and what happened that made them abandon that word? Yeah. Mm. And I say that, and I'm just like all excited and challenging, and then I say this, and when I say what happens to make them abandon this word, and then I remember that this is a black writer who's very uh, who's written about the history of slavery and race um, that suddenly makes my heart drop because I'm like, oh, that might be a very intentional choice of words for her. Right. You know, the idea that there's words vampires don't use. You bring up a very interesting point because even though these vampires, or we'll call them vampires because that's what they think they are, they're not sure if they're aliens, they're not sure if they're natural creatures, et cetera, et cetera. And even with their 10,000-year history and these texts that they have, they don't really know that much about themselves. And I mean, can I pause this? Because sure. this is like this is great conversation. But before we get into like this really involved discussion of the literature, sure. let's 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 pick this conversation back up in a second. But let's first chat about which edition of the For book sure. we're working with. Um, Tim, what are you working with today? Uh, the Kindle default book. I got it. All, I don't. So I don't know which version this is. I'm ashamed to say. What's the cover look like? Um, I'm on a little black and white Kindle, so I don't even know if I get to see the cover. Let me, let me get there. Oh, that's fine. And it's all right if you don't have an interesting, an interesting thing to share about it. It's fine if it's just default Kindle copy. Yeah. Let me get back to the cover or the whatever. 
While Tim is looking that up, Hoy, what are you working with? Uh, I am also working with the Kindle copy. This is the one that is, uh, I got it from the uh, New York Public Library, and I think it's the Seven Stories Press one. So it has a picture of, I'm guessing is Shori, with sort of a uh, combination somewhere between a Harlequin mask and African face painting, and then peeking over a fan uh, is the ebook cover. Okay. Yeah. Um, I also have an ebook. Mine is from 2005. It is the um, Warner, no, I'm sorry, 2007. It's the Warner Books Edition ebook that has um, a barefoot girl in a burning dress walking down steps, but you just kind of see her feet. Mm-hmm. And I also, at the same time, was listening to the 2005 audiobook recorded by Tracy Lay. There you go. Tim, did you find out anything more about your Kindle copy? Yeah, my, I have the same as Hoy. Perfect. So now let's go into the library and chat about what we think about this book from a literary perspective. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Hoy. I, I, do you want to pick up where you were? Okay. Yeah. I was thinking that it was interesting that they may think of themselves as a symbiotic relationship, but I wonder if the uh, these uh, creatures are actually more parasitical. It seems in some way that they don't really have a culture of their own. They've adapted human culture. They all have human names. They don't have any prehistorical vampire names, right? Uh, even though they have a text that is supposedly in their prehistoric language. Um, their forms of social organization uh, are determined uh, a large part by their biology, but they're still not completely alien to human social organization. So I think they've layered human social organization over their biological necessities. Um, and they may even be deliberately amnesiac about what they were or what they're about. So that's just a thought that I had. Perfect. Uh, Tim, overall, what was your experience of reading Fledgling? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to go for the big thing first in this book. Okay. Um, I almost threw it across the room, not out of anger, uh, or anything else, but like it was a snake that was could have been, that, that I didn't know was going to be there, um, and that's because. And I and tell me if there's a better way I can address this. I can see you two on video, so I'm going to watch your faces for reactions to how I'm putting this. Um, in like the third or fourth <laughs> in the third or fourth chapter, we have a character who we see as a nine year old girl, right? Nine or ten year old girl as identified by uh, an adult man who's helping her uh, have sex with that child, right? Is that a safe way to put it? That is oh, a safe yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I was, I'm like, holy shit, this is really intense and it's not what I was expecting. And it didn't have like the kind of safety bells and whistles that a thing like that might have when you're sliding into it. And, um, Within and I, and I, so I think that was and, and the book for those of you who haven't read it justifies this later by pointing by revealing that the character the protagonist who looks like she's nine or ten years old is actually a seventy year old vampire I think is that correct something like that fifty fifty seven yeah. fifty seven thank you um, and she's a adolescent vampire but she has the mentality of an adult uh, beyond an adult human. And this, for me, is was doubly a punch in the stomach, because when I chose the name Thousand Year Old Vampire for my game Thousand Year Old Vampire, I had not been I wasn't savvy to the to the 
the uh, idea that there's a whole culture of um, sexualized young characters who are thousand year who are ancient vampires, but look like children, but are highly sexualized. And people say it's okay because they're a vampire that's thousands of years old. And uh, and so I had both that weird wave of shock and horror from that uh, compound with this event in the book. And so now that I've said that, I'm going to be really quiet for a minute because I want to hear what you folks say. Yeah, I have I have lots of thoughts around this. Um, I guess the first thing that I would say is on on the surface, this this um, this part of the story is something that could be something that could be done very in a very problematic way. Um, and I know that this is that I, we don't need to like separate the art from the artist here, but it, it makes me think of the separation of the art from the artist in the sense that my favorite movie is Rosemary's Baby and Roman Polanski is a child rapist. And that's that those are both true statements. And for me, Rosemary's Baby and the works of Roman Polanski isn't isn't ruined for me. Um, because he's a child rapist, because I don't feel like he's grooming me or, indoctrin- or indoctrinating me into like his way of thinking. However, I used to enjoy Woody Allen movies. I no longer enjoy Woody Allen movies because when I watch them, I feel like he is actively grooming me to be okay with men in their 40s dating uh, teenage girls. And I am profoundly uncomfortable by, by that. The reason I bring all of this up is to say that this kind of storyline done by another person in a different way could be a big problem. The way that it was handled by Octavia E. Butler was, I thought, masterful. And I also think, and I'm, I don't know for sure, but I feel like this is an intentional thing that she is doing to make the readers uncomfortable. Um, And part of the reason why I think that she's doing it is she wants us to not have total buy-in into who Shori is and into like the relationship she has in the same way that the Silks, the people who don't know Shori and don't know about how real her relationships were, were able to were, were completely offended by her and wanted her destroyed. So I think part of what she's maybe doing is also making us, the audience, not completely comfortable and on her side from the very beginning, so that we can also feel that the discomfort of that dissonance. And yes, she is in the body of a 10-year-old girl. Culturally and reproductively, she is a child, even in their culture, but she also has the maturity of a 57-year-old and the sexual desires of a much older person. And also the idea of her having sex with this adult man, part of this is like, what is this adult man thinking? And it would be really easy for us to be really uncomfortable with that aspect as well. But I also thought that was explained very well with the fact that like this guy picks her up, he sees this like naked, uh, bloody girl running down the street at night. He picks her up because he wants to get her to the police station or to the hospital or something, but she bites him. And the way that we know that the mythology in this book works, as soon as you're bitten by this vampire, they've basically got massive controls over you. So when they started having sex, he was fully like in her thrall at that point. So I don't know. Um, For me, it was uncomfortable, but I feel like in a way that was profoundly satisfying for me. What do you think, Hoy? I agree with a lot of that. Now, I know that in some ways, this is also your field of study and professional uh, career, talking about, you know, sexual trauma and all this other stuff that's going forward. Um, 
I had two things I thought were interesting about this. And again, I'm like one of the least qualified people to talk about this. I can only just talk about it from the outside. I was reading briefly on after I'd read the book on Wikipedia. And um, I do think that Octavia Butler very much was doing this in response to the vampire fiction that was very popular at the time. I'm sure she read Anne Rice and what was the name of the vampire child? And, and, uh, uh, Claudia. Claudia. Um, she did mention that in the early 2000s that she was reading a lot of vampire fiction. And I believe this actually was a period when Octavia Butler was had a lot of writer's block issues. And so she was just reading a lot. And then sort of that stewed into And she said, maybe she just said, hey, I can do this. This is my take. Um, mm-hmm. There was a... I'm going to give this credit to, I think I have the right person here. So again, this is in the uh, Wikipedia entry. Um, This is Habiba Ibrahim is a scholar. I don't know anything about her. She mentioned that um, one way to look at this is that we tend to, uh, especially since the Victorian era, sort of separate out childhood as a state that is um, an unfallen state, um, right, from the adult world and that they're closer to, you know, the unfallen state, um, but that black children are never given that option. They are. <laughs> and so this is a way of talking about that as well. Um, oh, right. Um, certainly black young men are never given that option. They're considered a threat as soon as they can, you know, their voice breaks. Right. <laughs> um, and, and that black girls are sexualized from very, very much earlier than they sh- should even be in our general culture. Yeah. Um, and so that's also a commentary. It may not be a in-your-face literal commentary, but it's there as a substrate of this whole thing. There, there's a trick to that. Actually, I'm going to jump in if I can. Uh, I, I think I noted that I don't think we real we learned that Shori is black until around page 80. I could be wrong, but I marked the first time that the race was was that she was described that I noticed, and that did happen after the sex uh, first sex scene. Mm-hmm. So um, that that can, that uh, doesn't in any way. That's just a bit of information that you know compounds what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, can, I don't know how far you want to go outside of this into Butler's other works, but if we look at like Kindred, you have uh, slave masters having sex with slaves, uh, and that happened with like I don't mm-hmm. know. You're making distress faces. I don't want to go too far, uh, but we see similar themes maybe in other books. I think there's a chance you're projecting projecting things onto my face. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> um, really quick, there's a slave master who's in love with uh, a slave since they were children in Kindred. And he's romantically in love with her, but keeps her and rapes her, right? And keeps her as a slave. So I feel like there's we build a big picture about sex and power and race, maybe across these different books that butler was looking at i don't know because again i'm not i'm not good with mm-hmm. books that's just a thought right i think yeah I have, i'm not familiar with the rest of her body of work and uh i think jeff you're this is your first time reading octavia butler as well right yes this right. is my first right and i would be interested since you have read a little bit tim this is her I, I wonder even if she has the same concerns whether this book is an outlier in her body of work i have no idea because i haven't read any of her other stuff yet in terms of theme literary technique or whatever um there's a book she a short story a novella a long short story called blood child which is incredible uh and the 22nd summary are that humans are living with these parasit these egg uh, ovipositor aliens on another planet and they have made complex family structures with the aliens 
and the aliens put their eggs into humans, and then the humans are cut open to remove the eggs, but you, the humans usually survive. And they actually have loving, complicated family structures between humans and aliens where they're intermeshed. And it's a wonderful story. And I feel like this relates to this book. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Tim, I'm curious, once you got past the wanting to throw the book across the room because you felt like you had a snake in your hands, what was your experience of reading the rest of this book? How do you feel about it overall? Oh, I, I was really excited by the book. Uh, and then I was disappointed. because it, it ends in a way that you know there's going to be more, but she didn't write anymore. Yeah, um, she died a year later. Yeah, I would have followed up the whole series. Um, there was... She, the way she writes, and you kind of mentioned this, Hoy, is very, it's very conversational, maybe. So I have mm. trouble reading her, but I love to listen to audiobooks, right? Mm. Um, and I think that was my other big thought, was that this was a big book of hers that I read through. And the characters kind of, it, it chunks through information. It's not, it's a book, but it's also a way of describing vampire society, if you mm-hmm. told me this was a book written by vampires for child vampires to read as like a civics book, <laughs> I would believe you. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, Hoy, what, what was your experience of reading this book? What did you think? I was definitely um, nervous about the scenes, not to the point of, you know, uh, you know, feeling like I had a hot potato. Um, but I think the one thing that really does help overcome it is that very matter of fact prose that she has, um, which really helped work. And then as I was reading it, um, I mentioned in the book club, which is uh, something, Tim, that we have with some of our patrons that can come on before the show and discuss the book. Um, I felt this was a very, um, familiar in a strange way of, uh, I'm from the East coast, but it felt very West coast. From my times coming in, felt uh, Pacific Northwest, Bay Area. It felt very um, sort of slightly post hippie, um, which was to me was yeah. kind of interesting because I I knew a lot of hippies when I was growing up, and so there's like like these vampire colonies are essentially communes, right? And everybody seems to be happy to be there. We don't know how much of that is purely because of the vampires' powers of persuasion through their venom and their their sense, and how much of that is like they've selected the kind of people who would want to be in these like polycules these <laughs> you know uh, multi-generational uh structures um so and as tim as you were alluding it became this sort of very detailed uh description of this uh culture that on the face of it could have been a pure info dump but to me didn't feel that way right and so i really appreciate it i said okay this is really interesting i don't want to have anything to do with it in real life or anything even like it <laughs> you know uh my idea of hell is being around like a hundred other people who all know my business <laughs> right <laughs> but it was fascinating so i'm glad i read it and um i could see how someone would say hey you're trying to justify the unjustifiable blah 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 um but i again like you jeff i don't think that's what octavia but was aiming for i think she's just trying to like shake you up and make you think about a lot of other things and how, why they exist in our society. Yeah, and there are a lot of things where, on the surface, without context, something can look wrong, wrong and evil. 
And I think Octavia Butler is playing with that the way that right away we have a very visceral response to some things. But if we give it context, then our perception of that can change. And I also think this is just an, also an interesting exploration into misunderstood sexuality and, and the shame that goes along with it, too, because also, you know, all of the relationships are pansexual and panromantic um, and age in both directions, because also, you know, we've got Theodora, who is an older woman who is very much a sexual object in this in this book as well. Um, I think those things are explored in a really interesting way. But also, I just really enjoyed this book because it kept surprising me. You know, it's like right away, I feel like I'm experiencing some kind of a let the right one in kind of mystery. Like, I don't know, like even who or what is what this is. And then suddenly, like her dad appears and there's a massive info dump and we get all of this story. And I didn't expect that to happen. And then suddenly dad and his whole family is dead. Didn't expect that to happen. And then next thing I know, like we're like the the whole book becomes like a uh, like a trial drama. Didn't expect that to happen either. Um, but I had so much fun with each step on it. I, with each step of the story, but also I loved her. I loved the exploration of race that was happening in this story. Um, specifically how we have all of these characters who cannot fathom the idea that she was almost murdered and her family was murdered. Both sides of her family were murdered because of her race, uh, because of her being a mixed blood of like a combination of Ina, which is the term for the vampires, and with some human DNA put in. And because of that, she's the first one with dark skin. They think there's no way that that's the reason why this is happening, which makes a lot of sense, too, because when you're living in that like blue state liberal bubble, you can't imagine that people outside of this kind of utopia feel so vehemently and violently anti-things that you think are completely normal, that you would never understand why anybody has a problem with. And then we find out that they were wrong. We do have, that's exactly what was happening. There's no other bigger, like, secret thing happening underneath it all. It really was just that. It was a bunch of racist, old, white vampires who were a bunch of assholes who were behind the whole thing. We don't get some big, crazy twist ending. It's exactly what we thought it was. And I just, something about that is so powerful and done so, and I thought it was done so well. Um, I think she also is making a very interesting point that both that even um, well-intentioned uh, liberals can fall into, which is that she does make the uh, very idea that race, she does, it's very explicit that race is a construct, right? Because, uh, you know, it's not so much that Shori is black. That's a, that's a signifier for that fact that she's a hybrid with a human. It's the fact that she's not pure Ina. Wouldn't, if Ina actually were black, some other Ina were actually black, it would be fine. It's the fact that she's hybridized with the human so so there's that social the blackness is a social construct for the ina however for a liberal person to go around and go tell tell a person of color hey you know race is just a social construct it's profoundly stupid because the effects of that social construct are very very real Mm -hmm. (laughs) right and so she's saying yes this is a social construct but look at all the harm it's caused right and look how hard it's going to be able to undo (laughs) you know if at all And then not only is she mixed with human DNA with dark skin, she now has powers they don't have. She can walk in the sunlight. 
um, it's, it hurts like hell and she has to like, you know, wear a blanket and, has, and have some sunglasses on, but she can at least do it. And no Ina prior to her could. So not only is she an affront to them because of this, she's also got things that they don't have. And that feels like a big threat to them. Mm-hmm. And that's almost like a subtle way of talking about they weren't really using that word as much in the early 2000s, although they were already discussing that, uh, you know, replacement theory, which a lot of like, you know, white supremacists and other people are concerned about, like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. we'll be replaced by this sort of hybrid, non-pure Anglo-Saxon, you know. But there's also on, on top of like, the, you know, the race horror, there's also just the practical, like the vampire superpower thing that some vampires were saying. This person can walk in the daylight, and therefore they're a threat to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we send our underlings to murder people in the daylight because that's how we do it. Because and and then that's the only reason those people were thwarted was because Shori was able to walk in the daylight, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it really breaks their whole vampire power system. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Right. A and, uh, and vampire arms race. Mm-hmm. And and it's made very clear that they they. Um, that the silks, which is the opposition family, is a profoundly conservative isn't even the right word. It's really a reactionary uh, um, subset of this vampire culture. Even though their social structure, they they well, they have these again these communes, but their way that their commune is run, um, at least at the emotional level, even if not the practical level, is very different from the way that the Brath- Braithwaites do and. Um, the Metescus, is that right? Is that is that um, Shori's father's clan? Um, I don't remember something like that. So, um, so that on the surface the structure looks the same, but the effects of living within that structure um, are very different for the the human symbionts. You know. So I would love to transition this conversation over to the gaming side now, and I guess the first thing I would like to ask is Tim, how would thousand year old vampire work? With, huh. with 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 this particular um, version of vampire lore, um, would it? I I I don't know. But can I actually can I actually jump? Can we we can come back to that if you want to. But the thing is, I'm going to actually say that I got super excited about this game structure wise while I was reading it the first time through, and actually highlighted parts. And I highlighted one part and said, "This feels like a conversation between a game master and a player one on one." And that's whenever the character Shori knows nothing, right? The world is black. The world is yeah. blackness and nothing, and she's pain. And then w- moment by moment, she's given tiny pieces of information that build the yeah. world around her. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is two players playing a game uh, of giving and taking and reacting. And, you know, she could turn out to be inside a nuclear reactor for all we know. And yeah. that was what excited me game mechanically. Uh, because that's what I care about are how game mechanics make punchy experiences. And what I don't, what I'm uninterested in is making one system that absorbs like all the vampire worlds, you know? So when I look at this, okay. I don't, I don't see a van. I don't, I don't think, how do I make this in a thousand year old vampire at all? That's not the way I think. Yeah. Um, at all. Yeah. Is that okay to say? Uh, although of I course. guess the, the big change here. The big cool thing, if you were going to make a thousand-year-old vampire type thing where the world builds itself, uh, would be how do you have a prompt system or some kind of mechanical system that builds the vampire world that's hidden within our world? Because this world is distinct and strange. 
And how can we make a system that would make another distinct and strange system, right? Mm -hmm. Through prompts. Um, how, you know, does, do, do the vamp, how, how do vampire, do vamp, why do vampires have more than one mother, right? Could be a prompt uh, that you might hit or might not in a thousand year old vampire version mm. of this. I mean, obviously, the most interesting aspect of this uh, story is not the um, specific mechanics of vampirism, but the, the, the culture or the society that it creates. However, having said that, let's say the oldest vampire that we know of in this book is the head of the Silk Clan. Yeah, right? Milo. Milo. Um, so let's say we didn't do any changes uh, structurally to thousand-year-old vampire. How do you get from? How do you get a Milo out of thousand-year-old vampire? Or, or one of the other elders out of Thousand-Year-Old Vampire? Oh, um, I, uh, without mechanically changing the game, with keeping yeah. the game essentially as it is, yeah. I think you'd have to create, you'd have to make one modification, which is that you have to create vampire families, right? So instead of just create a character, you need to create a family. Mm. And then occasionally you would have to make those families interact as the side effect of prompts. Because that's mm. the thing with Thousand Year Old Vampire. It's really about one vampire fucking their way along uh, with maybe two or three other immortals around them in a haze, but there's never uh -huh. a structure. This is not, you know, complicated vampire politics. And I actually put that in the book. You're going to be disappointed if you try that. So, yeah, I think, again, rewriting prompts, the prompts need to create families, right? Mm. That then do yeah. things. Right. And then because they have a few of these special um, councils, or what's the right word for this? So what's the... Um, um, I don't remember. Uh, how we drive them, how would you then drive the game to then have a situation like one of these councils? Because that seems like a multiplayer situation, the councils. Yeah. Right. And well, that's no longer a solo prompt game. You know? But then it sounds like it's the kind of game that he says Thousand Year of Vampire is not made for. Yeah. Well, but the thing, well, the Thousand Year of Vampire is about, isn't about stability at all. Every, every prompt is some kind of wild flip, right? And vampire, these vampire colonies are all about stability. They're like organisms that exist. And they live in a house or a commune and uh, pieces come and go, but they're always there. So I guess we'd have to write a game that goes from points of, that only cares about points of instability. And uh, mm -hmm. we can almost make it like a dungeon yeah. thing where we have the unstable moment that's full of excitement and then we have downtime where the colony just does the things it does. And then we have unstable moments again. And every unstable moment has to have a... Yeah, the decades of stability right, right. is not interesting. So that seems almost like a quiet year. Like, is that yeah. game a quiet year? Well, or what well, like in, yeah. Quiet, yeah, in a quiet year, you have contempt tokens, right? These vampires are taking contempt tokens all the time. Um, <laughs> and they... Yeah. So what do the vampires do when, why do vampires, I guess it's in their biology. That's what it is. Their biology compels them to operate in these weird groups of sisters mar uh, married to groups of brothers, right? And that maybe produces the society just on its own. Because the mm -hmm. society is so strange and so specific and you don't hear anyone breaking it. You don't mm -hmm. hear anyone doing their own thing. Yeah. I'm curious if there were bits of um, bits of this story that you thought would be fun to steal for maybe like a more kind of traditional role-playing game. If you wanted to play Vampire the Masquerade 
or Dungeons and Dragons. Were there some things in here that you thought were kind of fun bits that you can steal and inject into a game? Well, the there's two bits. Number one, the whole va- the complicated vampire society is really cool uh, because I'm really interested in like, hey, let's let's look at anarcho syndicalists and people like Murray Bookchin and stuff, and how do they want to reorganize society in the most efficient way possible. And so looking at like the vampire society, I want to actually put play in there and see how it breaks and see how what kind of interactions it allows that are surprising and unique. I want to actually do that, you know, and see what that's like. So just just give me that experience for a bit. Um, then what was the other thing? The other thing is the really complicated ex- relationship of power between the the potential symbionts, the developing symbionts and the vampire, right? There's these moments where they say the uh, short, the, the grown-up vampires tell Shuri to tell, I forgot the guy's name, her first symbiont's name. Right. Right. To tell right that it's not too late. He can still leave, right? And that part of the if vampires feed on someone for a while but aren't making them symbionts, that vampire has to visit them and say goodbye before they leave for real. And I just think there's these really nice moments in there, right? Like imagine a game where you just have to yeah. sit next to another player and they don't do anything. And you just say goodbye to them and tell them what their great life is going to be like and that you were just a dream. Just imagine that as a 10-minute little mini LARP, you know? Oh, so good. <laughs> I love that. How about you, Hoy? What what do you want to steal from this for kind of a more traditional role-playing game? Well, um, to me, it's like in a direct inversion of classic D&D because it's starting with like the domain game almost, right? I mean, narratively, I, I, I take your point, Tim. Like, it, it's almost like, okay, this is like her when she's injured and until she encounters right and then encounters her father. It's like, that's the low-level game. That's like the player in the world trying to discover the world. But then as soon as she's got right, She's right in the domain game. She's got her hireling. She's starting to create, you know, communities. Um, so it is kind of, um, you know, you could hack a, a regular trad D and D game um, and, and go right into it. You know, <laughs> so um, I think that's interesting, and I think that um, modern D and D. There's no reason why it couldn't happen, but I think modern D and D is really focused on like uh, big damn heroes, whereas um, first edition and earlier it was always considered part of the game that you would have um you might play your primary character but you would essentially play a small troop even within the larger group of other players because you would have like a couple of hirelings uh you know all that so you'd actually be responsible for like three or four characters and then as that player controlling this little group would you sacrifice all the the hirelings in order for your main character to be always safe or would you think that maybe collectively the survival of all those four characters or five characters might be more important at the risk of sort of leveling a little slower right Mm -hmm. um so i think it's there it's possible to do it um at least conceptually in D &D. the the classic game um that would that's built for that would be Ars Magica, right? Um, and that's the old for game sure. where you had one magician uh, who's surrounded by a troop of servants, and maybe all the players are just servants, and the magician just stays home, right? And we go and we bumble through things, and the magician's like a you know hell on wheels whenever he's in the room, but uh, everyone else is just a regular person, and that's very much like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think we even mentioned that in the book club. The uh, the art and 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 you could play at both levels. You could uh, the the wizard could be an NPC or the vampire could be an NPC, or it could just be like you play at two levels. Uh, this game we're playing the vampires in consultation with each other, and this game we're playing the symbionts uh, going and doing all of these tasks for their vampire masters, including buying real estate or you know, or all the other mundane things that they do. I think the D&D failure is that the vampire will always be the vampire and you'll never level up to that level, mm. right? And maybe that's because that's because, yeah, because the D&D, everybody can level up infant, you know, to max, but you can't if you're a symbiote. You're always second uh, class. Mm. Yeah. One thing that I think would be really fun to steal from this is, well, actually, I guess there are two things. The first is I love the vampire lore in this. I love that um, it's it's very early 2000s in the how do we take X monster but make it like biological and more real, especially if it's like an undead creature. You know, like we had like 28 days later, but it's really just a virus. Um, now we have like vampires, but really like they're they're not undead. Um, like there's kind of like a, a semi-scientific biological explanation for how they function. Um, but I what I thought was really interesting was how in the story it explains why the his the the vampire lore says that they're undead and a big reason is like they've killed they, they, they there've been times in the past where people have figured out what's going on they've killed them they've buried them but then they healed back up and crawled out of their graves everybody thought that they were like undead and little things like that i thought were some really cool world building and it made me think of like what could you do if you wanted to take that same perspective on werewolves or something else um and try to incorporate that into your game world. It's, it's kind of that thing where you roll up a bunch of uh, rumors and some of them are true and some of them are not true. And you're like trying to, and then like as a game master, you figure out like why people believe the untrue ones and how you can incorporate the true ones into it. But also I really loved how um, in this vampires for the most part, aren't really bad. I mean, they are if you want to come at it from a perspective of they're taking away your free will and you're now kind of serving them semi without your consent, but you're also getting good things from it. It's a complicated thing from that perspective, but they're not just running around murdering folks. But I think it would be kind of cool if like in a D&D game, like you guys encounter some vampires, you you destroy that vampire nest and they were definitely vampires who run around killing folks. But it turns out that they were like the like they were like the the bad ones, and like now like the the good vampires who don't do that shit are like really excited that like you wiped out the bad vampire <laughs> clan, um, or you could even make it kind of darker, and you don't realize you'd wiped out the bad ones. So when you encounter new ones later, maybe you start killing those, and then you find out that they actually aren't bad, and now there's like some moral gray area. Mm-hmm. If, if we like the conundrums, the rich one this offers is that you kill the vampire, the bad vampires. But they're perfectly neutral or good or just victim symbionts are still there. And they need their special vampire bites to stay alive. Oh, fuck. What do we do? Right. And then you go to the good vampires and they say, hey, we're loaded up. We don't need more people. So how do you negotiate this terrible situation Mm. you've created? Oh, and maybe you were hired by somebody who were like, oh, my my nephew was taken away by the vampires. Rescue my nephew. So you kill the vampires. And you rescue the nephew, but now you find out the nephew is dying because they now need that vampire. Or um, even in that same structure, the actual commandos that are going after these good vampires that the silks have sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, bamboozled and also controlled. 
what if you're that party? Maybe not even controlled. You've just been told, hey, there's a nest of vampires over there. Go kill them. And you don't know that the people who've hired you are the, the bad vampires, right? And then mm. you, you've done this bad thing already because it's natural. You want to kill vampires, right? Yeah, vampires um, are evil, right? Right. And then you're told that they're, and then the surviving vampire, the symbiote say, no, 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 they're fine. You're like, do you believe them? Or no, are you just, are they just trying to protect their own skins, right? And like, what do you, and then what do you go from there, you know? So. Yeah, and this could work as a D&D game. This could work as a World of Darkness Hunters game. Uh, there are lots of lots of um, systems that you could do something like this in. Now, can these vampires ever truly be good, right? I mean, I guess this isn't a question we can answer, but, you know, you, you they are people are compelled to serve yes. them when they're bitten. Right. They say there's a choice, but there's not really a choice. Their consent is taken from them. There's one character who requests it because there's communities of symbionts who have children and raise them and the children aren't symbionts and some children leave the community, but others come back and want to be paired with the vampire. And we see that in the yeah. book. So we do see a cultural impetus toward this with people who are on the inside. But then there are some that desperately want to get away. And yeah. you see that same kind of thing happen in cults where the children raised in cults, some of them want to stay in the cult and some of them want to get as far away from the cult as possible. That's there's still a question of whether or not that's truly free will right, right. in that moment. And even that's even at the sort of like the within our society level. And if we want to like bring it another 5,000, 10,000 feet up, what if we're all the vampires? We're living in global capitalism. We're extracting resources and wealth from the other nine tenths of the world, right? Are we willing to, can we even give that up? Can, is it even possible for us if we're living within that system, right? How <laughs> to, dare you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we're not even giving them. We're not even giving them bliss and friendship right. and love, right? Um, um, we give yeah. them war. Yes. <laughs> while, while, while we podcast about books that inspire D&D. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, right? Uh, so that's, yes. yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I personally don't necessarily believe that, but I'm putting that out there as a point sure. of conversation that I think people mm -hmm. are having generally about a lot of things right now. You know, our 20 years previous uh, involvement in the Middle East, uh, our, even our potential current involvement in Ukraine and all these other well, things. Well, and like, it's yeah. also like that TV show, The Good Place. I don't want to spoil anything about it, but if anybody watches The Good Place, like that's very much like what the big question of that show is about too. So, so here's another D&D &D thought. If there's, if, if I, I, I'm, you know, I want, I'm a good character and I want stability for the kingdom. Oh, that's my pie timer. Uh, and I want stability for the kingdom, right? And I've killed the king, whatever. He's an evil guy. If you told me there was a bunch of vampires just like these vampires, I might say, well, you know what? I think this would make a really good group of people to put in charge of the kingdom. They love stability. They're not actually infectious. They don't, they're not going to take over everybody as like cattle. They just want their little group of fuckers around them to take, sorry, to take care of them and to be nice and to be their little polycule. And they're smart and they're long lived. And, and again, they love stability. Yeah. Maybe these are great people to have in charge. There you go. That's not a bad idea. Do you want to go take your pie out of the oven? <laughs> I'm totally going to deep pie. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> So while Tim is depieing his oven, um, Hoy, do you have any other thoughts? Because I think we're, we're about to start wrapping up soon. But do you have any kind of final thoughts yourself about this book? Um, yeah, I'm still mulling over whether I like this book, but I think it's very readable. And, and so I, I do encourage anyone who, who, with the caveats that 
Tim and all of us have already mentioned. Uh, if you think you can get over that hump, I think it's worth reading because I don't think it's, even though Shory and all that are presented as sympathetic, I don't think Octavia Butler is saying this is the way things ought to be. I don't think that, you know, I think this just, uh, you know, she's holding a mirror up and it's a fun house mirror and it's up to us to decide whether we like that picture or not. Yeah. I I adored this book and I had a great time reading it. And it's funny because it, to me, like I, I, part of the reason why I started the in-person book club that then Hoy and I turned into the podcast was I hadn't really read a lot of like Appendix N style stuff and I really wanted to read that stuff. So this became my opportunity to do it. But I would say prior to this project, this is the kind of book that I was reading before. So this is like the first book that we've come across in this project that uh, for this particular podcast that I probably would have read at some point anyways. And I just absolutely adored it. But uh, Tim, do you have any final thoughts about fledgling you'd like to share? It does a lot of things I absolutely love. It introduces you to this complicated ser- uh, uh, world through a person's eyes. And that person is a good person. And they're trying to negotiate a tricky we All the weirdness we've described, the character sees as weirdness, right? They say, you don't have free will. How do I fix that? Um, and they very carefully, like, they, the, the, char- the vampire cooks for their symbionts at one point, right? So there's... There's how do a group of people live together is part of the way is part of what this book is trying to answer. So I like it. This is good. And speaking of that, and just because you're pies, you just mentioned, can you believe how many descriptions of food there are in this book? And the vampire doesn't even eat. But every time they have a meal, you hear exactly what they have for that meal. <laughs> Ham sandwich with gravy. She's fascinated by it. <laughs> yeah. We're putting these things into her mouths that she doesn't need. So I think she thinks it's a completely fascinating and bizarre thing. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe an envious thing. I don't even know, but it's so clearly described. Every time, you know, you know, every uh, time she did have a sip of coffee at one point though, and just, and thought it was, uh, I forget if it's slightly better or slightly grosser than water, it's, yeah. but it's just slightly different than water. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So Tim, are there any projects you're working on right now? You'd like our listeners to be aware of. Um, when you're hearing this, I should have the book, a, a new game of mine called Apollo 47, uh, available as a print on demand book through drive through RPG. Uh, that's my big thing that, you know, I'm pushing through right now. And that's a one page game about internet astronaut radio chatter, uh, that lives in a 1200 page book. Um, so that's the, that's the big thing I'm excited about. And I'm working on another, a a spiritual sequel to thousand year old vampire, uh, which is, which won't be ready for a year, a month. Um, but it, it's about being a person that meets a thousand-year-old apex predator and hangs around with them and what that's right. like. Oh, cool, so cool. So that's like right, the RPG. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, a- a- am I am I going to have sex with this thing? Does it like me or am I, is it going to eat me or do I even know it's a vampire and it just wanders out of my mouth? <laughs> so I'm, I'm super excited about this game. Very, Very cool. cool. It's yeah. uh, Does that have a title yet that we should be looking for or is that still uh, a TBD? Oh, it's... It'll still, it'll, it'll, it's not, it won't be ready for a long time. Uh, Timothy Hutch, no, not timothyhutchings.com. Thousandyearoldvampire.com is my website. And there's like a, I think there's a mailing list there. I'm not sure anymore, but um, that's it. If you want to order my books, that's where everything lives. Cool. And in general, is that the best place for people to find you online? Yeah, it is. I'm bad at being online. So that or Twitter. I don't know. Man. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. I'm terrible at everything. So, 
Perfect. Well, Hoy, where can folks find us? Right. Um, if you uh, want to get in touch with us, you can drop us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. If you like what you hear, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as Google Play or Apple Podcasts. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Have you listened to a bunch of these episodes and you're not supporting us yet and you're in a position where you can? Then head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us that you appreciate all the hard work we put into the show. Do you know we read a whole book every two weeks? Uh, so yeah, if you want to show us some support and, uh, <laughs> we would really appreciate it. Uh, I would like to, uh, give a shout out to a few of our patrons, uh, and I'd like to highlight two of our new patrons. Thank you to Steven Fritter and Chris Holmes for joining our Patreon. I'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our others, uh, Justin Hamilton, Sean Birch, Rose City Politics, Richard Reed, Andrew Brown, Eric Johnson, Carsa Torvald, and Adam Monier. Thank you so much for your support. Also want to let you know that our patrons are able to join us before these recordings for our patron book club. And today we are joined by Rick Byrne and Adam Styers. Thank you both for joining us uh, for the patron book club. Also, our patrons get to vote on what books we cover. The results are in for episode 125. Um, Tim will be happy to hear we are covering covering uh, Michael Shea's A Quest, A Quest for Symbolists. Do you know what that is, Tim? Yeah, I read that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's the official sequel to the uh, Dying Earth books that Jack Vance actually yeah. gave permission to have written. Um, and then for episode 126, we're going to cover William Hope Hodgson's Karnacki, the Ghost Finder. And when this episode drops, I'm going, oh, you're excited about Karnacki? Oh, fuck. That's so good. That's one of the, <laughs> yes. Awesome. Awesome. But I'm exci- I'm even more excited to read it. And episode 129, when this episode drops, the patron poll for that will drop as well. And the theme of the book for episode 129 is going to be unfinished business. So it'll be books that we've already started the series, but would like to continue. So the books that will be up for vote for episode 129 will be Clive Barker's Books of Blood, Volume 2. Ursula K. Le Guin's The Farthest Shore, Gene Wolfe's The Claw of the Conciliator, and A. Merritt's The Metal Monster. So that is my rant about our Patreon. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. That yeah. is a pleasure and oh, honor. That's pie. More, more pie. It's pie time. <laughs> And what kind of pie is it, Tim? A blueberry pie. Unseasonal blueberry pie. Perfect, perfect, perfect. I was worried for a second you were saying unseasoned blueberry pie. And I'm like, what does that mean? Is there like no sugar in it? No no pepper. (laughs) No pepper on my pie. I I am so excited about the Carnegie stories. They are so terrifying. Oh, cool. There you go. Especially the hog. The hog is really weird and grotesque. I had such a blast with House on the Borderlands. So I'm excited to to read Carnacki. There we go. I hated House on the Borderlands. I loved it. Oh my gosh. I loved it. I, everybody loves it but me. And I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, we still we still love you, Tim. So Aww. with that, that is our episode. Uh, thank you for being on the show, Tim, and thank you, listeners, for listening. All right, everybody. <laughs> See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.